Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. This show is brought to you by Slate House Property Management. Slate House manages over 3,500 units across the Mid-Atlantic, including Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. Property management is sure not the sexiest industry, but what makes Slighthouse unique is it was founded by investors and engineers. Slighthouse has built or licensed over 12 different technologies to improve returns for investors and make better living experiences for tenants. Full-time maintenance guys help work get done quicker at a reasonable price. Slighthouse manages properties for many of the guests on this show and has helped them scale their business while they focus on acquiring properties. For more information, go to slatehousegroup.com, call 717-413-6976, or email service at slatehousegroup.com. Look forward to talking to you. Welcome, guys. Uh, another edition here, Real Estate Hackers Podcast. I'm really excited and pumped. We got Neil Bawa today. And uh, what I'm excited about is we got someone on the podcast here who might be even more excited about data and technology than even I am. So thanks a lot for joining us, Neil. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, uh, this uh, w when I heard that you're, you're doing a podcast called Real Estate Hackers, that was very exciting for me. My moniker in, in real estate is the mad scientist of multifamily. I'm known for my experiments. Ironically, my most favorite experiment, the one that's gotten me the most visibility, is the one where I hacked tomato growth in my backyard. That video just goes nuts every time I, I do an update on it. But I, I like to hack everything. And, and um, so more than anything else, I'm a hacker. I'm an experimenter. My past is very tied to it. So it's great to be on, on a show like this. That's awesome, Neil. And you, you piqued my interest. So what, uh, what was the tomato hack? So the tomato hack was, so I, I've had a motorcycle accident, so I hate bending, right? So my back gets stiff. So the first thing that I did was I looked at various different ways of having elevated farms. And I, you know, after looking at five different methods, I picked one called a square foot gardening. It's very famous. You can look it up on Amazon, square foot gardening. And my goal was to use the smallest amount of wood possible to get the maximum amount of yield possible. And so th then I also ran experiments with what kind of food I would grow, three or four different kinds of experiments, and basically settled at tomatoes. I basically said, I'm going to be a tomato farmer. And then on these elevated beds, which are 30 inches raised, uh, first I tried to figure out what is the, the least amount of depth that you need. 
So I tried four inches, five inches, six inches, and eight inches of depth. And, and the short answer is you can grow perfectly awesome tomatoes with six inches of soil. But it doesn't work if you do it at four inches because the tomatoes are stunted. So I did a video about that. And then after that, I did a video where we, I talked about what is more important? Is soil more important? Is sunlight more important? And what is the impact of LED lighting? So we did this combo video where, you know, you, you, you see in the video that on the left side, I've got LED lighting and, and this is uh, both blue and pink lighting and it's on 24 hours a day. On the right side, the light's on about six hours a day and you can tell the difference in growth. Like the, on the left side, you see the Amazon jungle and on the right side, you see these, these you know, these, these nice tomato plants, but they're clearly not overrunning uh, the, the area. And then uh, we did another one where we compared two different kinds of soil. So basically the bottom line was now I have tomatoes that basically are these mutant ninja tomatoes that kind of take over my backyard. <laughs> at, the end, at the end of the videos, I tell people, how do I use this to raise money, right? So one of the things that I do is I, I, have, I live in an affluent neighborhood with you know 4,000 square foot homes. And so one of the ways that I have of connecting with my invest, with my uh, neighbors is that I do this stuff and I tell my, my wife tells my neighbors about it. And then of course I take these bags filled with these massive fresh tomatoes and I deliver them to people. And it's a great conversation starter. And so, so far I'm at about $600,000 raised from the mutant ninja tomatoes. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, that's more than I even bargained for. So I love the story. Um, it sounds like a, like a science experiment, basically. That I'm you constantly experimenting. School. I mean, yeah. I, I do an experiment every, every day and there's so many different experiments that I'm running at any given point of time. And my failure rate tends to be about two thirds, right? So about two thirds of the experiment fail. One third either succeed or get morphed into something that becomes successful in, in, eventually. So I think I have a pretty good high success rate with, with my experiments, but, um, but it works, yeah. I love that so much. I mean, one thing I talk about that's, a, that's been a key to our success, I, I call it, we take a lot of shots. And uh, I think, you know, one thing you see with, with people who are successful in real estate and really anything is they're not afraid to, to shoot the ball or in your case, run experiments, realizing everything's gonna work, but being okay to, have things that don't work. And I guess in, and maybe what you've gotten really good at, I'd like to hear you talk with the audience is running experiments that are not too expensive, I guess, if there's a, if they don't work. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you another one that worked recently that I think part of your audience that likes raising money, I think will love this experiment. So, uh, you know, I, we are a multi-channel marketing company. We use 11 different marketing channels to raise money. And we, we are very high volume syndicator. We currently are at a run rate to raise about $50 million this year. So, And, and really, really quick, Neil, just to give people the, the context. So you were telling me you, uh, you basically syndicate for, running, for owning multifamily apartment complexes kind of all over the country, and, and now you own a, a whole bunch of units that you've syndicated. Yeah, so well over 2,000 units. The portfolio is at $200 million. It'll be at $300 million even if I don't buy anything because $100 million is in construction. Okay. Um, so um, we have about 2,000 accredited investors that are currently looking at our projects. Uh, we've raised $20 million in the last 90 days. And these wow. are three or four different deals. And all of those are really tied to the experiments. And I'll actually give you one of those experiments on yeah. LinkedIn if you want that. So, yeah, that's perfect. so you know, there's, uh, we use 11 different channels 
to communicate with our investors, to talk with them and connect with them and find them and, and nurture them, whatever you want to call it. And one of those methodologies is LinkedIn. And, and I was having a consistently low yield on LinkedIn because we track the yield on every single channel. And so we track it because we have software like Active Campaign that basically is spooky, uh, big brother kind of feel. So for example, I know a lot about Chad Gallagher and I can, you know, on this show, tell, tell people about what are some of the things that, what, what's the interaction that Chad has had with us, right? Because we're, we're kind of watching everything that you're doing. And my LinkedIn interaction was pretty low, even though I have, you know, 10,000 plus people connected to me on LinkedIn. And so I tried three or four different hacks. I didn't like any of them. Eventually, I came up with this hack of my own that um, I've, I've gotten some fame for. I, I, I opened the Denver Money Raising Summit with this hack and the crowd just went nuts, right? It just, they wouldn't, they, 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 they like standing there stopping me and saying, please go through this again, right? Because it, it was shocking to them that this thing could be done for so little money. So here's the process. But you gotta be you gotta be careful. You have to follow this literally step by step, right? You can't break any of the steps. All right, so, I'm excited. I'm excited. So you open your LinkedIn account, right? And um, make sure that the LinkedIn account is open. Now, what what you need to do is create a new Gmail account. Don't use Chad's regular account, right? Go go create a new Gmail account. Then Google uh, companies on the web that are selling accredited investor lists. Okay, and find somebody and buy a list of a thousand investors that are in your metro. Like, so these are all accredited investors and they're in your metro and now you have their names and their phone numbers and their email address. Not all of the records might have email addresses, but it's, it's okay, you, that, it's still worthwhile. And pretty much 50% of the list is garbage, but you've still got 500 accredited investors in your local market, right? That are in this list that are legit. And um, I, the list, can't possibly cost you more than a thousand bucks, probably a lot less than a thousand. So now you, you, you know, you take these, this list and what you do is you Google, you Google LinkedIn contact sync template, and you will find a link that tells you how to structure this Excel spreadsheet that you've just bought so that LinkedIn can read it. I'm sorry. So that Gmail can read it, not LinkedIn. It, so you're looking for doing a Gmail import. Remember this brand new account that has nothing? You're trying to take all these accredited investors and stick it into Gmail. And people are like, but am I not trying to connect to them on LinkedIn? Yes, but this is a two-step process. It doesn't work if you directly do this with LinkedIn, right? So stick the in investors into Gmail. Now log out of the Chad regular Gmail account and log into this Gmail account. Very important that you do this first, right? and make sure your LinkedIn account is closed while you're doing it. Then open your LinkedIn account, go to the contact, go to the network tab. In there, there's gonna be a button somewhere in there called contact sync, S-Y-N-C. Click on it, and in most cases, 90% of the time, you might have to log in and out a couple times to make this work. In most cases, LinkedIn will, will give you a button that says, would you like to import all of your Gmail accounts? And you say, yeah, sure, I wanna do that. You click that button. And because you're already logged in, sometimes it asks you to log in, sometimes it just accepts the fact that you're already logged in. And it's now going to say, I am preparing your contact sync contacts. So go away, come back a couple hours later, refresh the page, and now you'll see a, something that says, you, contact sync, your, your contacts are ready, right? And so you click on that button, and now you notice that LinkedIn is simultaneously allowing you to send invites to thousands of people. Now I said a thousand investors because I'm trying to keep your cost down. 
I do 10,000, right? It allows you to send an invite to 10,000 people at the same time. Try doing this with LinkedIn manually. It's going to block you because it thinks you're spamming people, right? So it's, it's not going to allow you to do more than 40 or 50 a day. It's just, it's going to block your account. Right. But because it thinks that these people are in your Gmail account, it doesn't have the limit. That's so amazing. You can, what, what is truly amazing is that it doesn't just allow you to send these once. It allows you to send them as many times as you want. <laughs> so, so you get the 10,000, you see the 10,000 there, you click on, you know, you connect. And then a week later, go back. And now it doesn't say 10,000. It has like 9,000 because 1,000 have already connected with you. It clicks connect. Then it sends it to the nine, then to the 8,000, then to the seven, then to the six. So as you keep going, these people are all connecting with you. And if you have a virtual assistant, make sure you tag them in LinkedIn so you know that they came in from the local accredited investor group that you bought. And now start inviting them to your local meetup where you're presenting, or maybe it's your meetup, or maybe it's an event that you're hosting. Now, the initial yield is low because it's cold networking, right? But what I found is that over time, because they're connected to you on LinkedIn and you're providing high quality content, this is important. None of this shit works without the high quality content. Right. But as right. long as you're providing consistent high quality content, you'll notice that a year later, a bunch of those people have invested with you. It's crazy. I mean, you can raise millions of bucks this way. It's amazing. And that initial list you're just kind of buying that, like th that exists to be able to buy just a accredited investor lists in a, in a geo area? Just those three words on Google, accredited investor lists, and there's a whole bunch of people selling them. And Bargain, you, these people drop their prices very easily because they're selling digital content. So right. they say 18 no cents cost. per record, yeah. uh, counter offer with five cents. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But I, I guess what the average thing to do would be to just take those, put them into your CRM and start emailing them. And what you're it saying doesn't and work well, right? It, because because you're you're going to go to spam so quickly, your yield is going to be very low. LinkedIn doesn't go to spam as quickly, right? Yeah. And and when people are receiving your update because they're connected to you on LinkedIn, that update is not coming from Chad Gallagher. It's coming from LinkedIn, yeah. so it has a completely different level of authority than you could ever have. Right. This is why when I use cold links for my list for my metro to invite to my meetup, I don't send it from rowcapitus.com. I send it from eventbrite.com. Oh wow! Higher you get a you get a higher connection rate huh. because Eventbrite is a brand. Right. <laughs> you don't know them. They don't know you, but they know Eventbrite. So they open. <laughs> <my email. laughs> I've as tried lots of different ones. Eventbrite has the highest open rate. I've tried a, a bunch of different ones in my experiments. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm fascinated already. So, okay. Uh, could you talk me through maybe some of the experimenting you've done? Do you experiment? So you've, you talked about a lot of kind of experimenting and raising capital. Have you experimented also for how you manage the properties? Yeah, I think so. 80% of my experiments are related to property management because okay. I find that one of my critiques, and you know, I often appear on podcasts just to take my frustrations out. So, one of the, the problems with our industry is we've got a lot of young people that have come in in the last four or five years, and there's just so much focus on buying buildings and raising money 
but I on Facebook almost nobody ever posts anything about asset management, about property management, about systems, processes, trackers, audits, and all of those things that really matter a heck of a lot more. Because if you think about it, if you've been a syndicator, by the way, you know this, a lot of young people are like, what's he talking about? But you cannot scale a business on acquisition fees, okay? I can tell you very truthfully, apart from my healthcare, my company has never paid me $1 of acquisition fees. And as you can tell on a $200 million portfolio, we've had a lot of acquisition fees because those fees, you need to invest into systems, processes, you know, structures, staff, asset managers, uh, travel. That's the investment. That's what you're getting paid to do, not to put money into your pocket. Every syndicator, high quality syndicator knows that we make money from the back end mm-hmm. and we make money from the rents once the, you know, beyond the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually very heavily vested into making experiments on the, on the property management and asset management piece. So I spend a lot of time doing that. In fact, if you go to my Facebook, this is probably the, one of the best ways to look at it. Go to my Facebook and search for Efficiency Center, and you'll find that I hold these closed meetings in the San Francisco Bay Area that are two-day events where we bring in all of our operating partners at our cost and show them some of the stuff that we're doing, get their feedback, improve what we're doing based on their feedback. Two days just working on asset management techniques, extremely technology-driven, very heavily technology-driven, but we're looking at every sort of option that you can imagine in an efficiency center uh, meeting. These are not these are not public. You can't buy a ticket. You can't get in unless you're one of our operating partners. But you can watch some of the videos that are posted on Facebook where they're telling you what's happening in the efficiency center summit. Uh, that's, that's that's awesome. I mean, Neil, I I love what you're saying. I think you're so right that people love to post on Facebook the uh, just closed on that 60 unit building. Um, and, and don't like to talk about the nitty gritty of grinding it out every day. To- yeah. Uh, how many people, Chad, have posted, you remember that building that I closed on a year ago? My investors are now making 8%. How many people have you seen post that, right? <laughs> how many people have you said posting 11 months in my NOI is running ahead of schedule? <laughs> I can tell you, you, you probably get nobody posting it because the NOI is not running ahead of schedule. And by the way, my, mine isn't either. I have a number of properties running below NOI. Point is, I'm working on them. Right, of course. To fix that. So talk me through. Uh, so, I, I mean, uh, look, I'm, I'm definitely a kindred spirit here. We manage a lot of properties. We spend every day trying to figure out how to eke out additional NOI against those properties. Um, some we own, most we don't own, um, and and we look at big batches of data all the time. What are maybe give the audience an example of um, something that you've seen? Well, let me ask you a very specific question. Actually, um, one thing that we uh, go up against a lot is: do you, should you increase rent or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and and easy. Wait, I mean, there's there's two there's two people in in different camps. One camp says if a tenant's paying rent, don't increase rent at all. Keep it, mm-hmm. keep it flat. The other camp, and, and frankly, the one that we're in, is the one that says, well, no, uh, due to inflation and just market pressure, we actually do want to increase the rent every year, 2 to 4%, not a huge amount. Um, 
and then we see very little uh, drop off from tenant turnover from that. I'm interested to see what, what you've seen. Is this something that you've thought about or, or have any kind of data on? I think a lot of it depends. So there's no good answer to that question because the question is too broad. So in my mind, the question has to be broken down. Firstly, what kind of city are you in? Is, is the job growth in the city uh, at least 2%? Is the income growth in the city over the last 12 months 2%? If you've got 2% job growth in the last 12 months and 2% income growth, I would definitely be in the group of let's raise rents. Now, the same applies at the neighborhood level because as you can tell, job growth at a city level may not apply to your neighborhood. So in my mind, a tool like Neighborhood Scout, which we use all the time, we pay for the, the most expensive subscription because we're using the damn thing twice a day. We use neighborhoodscout.com to figure out what is the increase in incomes in our neighborhood? What is the increase in jobs in our neighborhood? Uh, is our neighborhood gaining jobs? Is it losing jobs? And if it's gaining jobs and gaining incomes, then I am very much in the in the camp of raising rents. And you said two to four percent. I've been more aggressive than that. I've raised five or six or seven percent. But one of my secret sauces is that even though I have third-party property managers, I am raising. I am creating tenant leads myself, right? So. This we are on a run rate to create 20,000 tenant leads this year. And we also have a massive call center in the Philippines that schedules appointments from those 20,000 leads because the internet leads are very low quality. You know this, right? I mean, they're really, really low quality. The quality is really there in the first 60 minutes. So think of this as a food that only tastes good for the first 60 minutes, right? <laughs> And I don't believe that there's any property managers in the U.S. structured to process that lead in the first 60 minutes. So we built our own call center. You want to know some of the appointments that we've set today? You want to see those? So here they are. Lakewood Oaks, Ashley Makel, scheduled at 10.51 a.m. Caitlin Green, Kaze Burton, um, Windward Forest, Renee King, Modestine Burgess, uh, Alaya Brady, all of these, Jamaica, Rosamund, all of these are this morning's appointments that we've scheduled, that we have, not the property manager, right? So we typically will schedule 20 appointments a day. So we don't believe in leaving our feet, uh, fate to the property managers, no, no um, disrespect intended, because we feel that nobody actually pays property managers enough to do all the things that they're supposed to do. We feel we are the only asset manager in America that bluntly says all property managers are underpaid because you, you can't possibly do everything. Reputation management, renewal management, delinquency management, community building, collecting rents, raising leads, processing leads, doing tours, doing renewals, doing re rehab, all of that for 3%. That's a lot. All right. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's fascinating. I think one thing I talk about with investors is I find we, we, we look at some of the, like what leads to success or lack of success for an investor. And uh, I, I mean, I, I do strongly believe, I, I mean, I think we do a good job as a prime management company, but the investor, and I don't care if you own five properties or 105, the asset management role is probably not talked about enough in, in not just multifamily, just in real estate investing overall, people want to talk about passive income and 
if, if you are the direct link, whether you have a property management company or not, if you're the direct link between that property management company and the property, there's still going to be some, at the very least, decisions to make and more likely a whole a bunch of things to kind of work through. And I, I agree with you that, 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 that go a bit beyond the scope of what a prime management company is typically going to do. I think yeah. sometimes investors just maybe take that for granted and don't, don't realize that there is a, there's a role there in the asset management of, of any property. I think some of it also is that property managers are so busy that there is, to, be, to put it honestly, a little bit of squeaky wheel syndrome. I know that some properties get less attention than others. I, um, one of my goals is to be the squeakiest wheel in, the, in, my, in my PM's portfolio. <laughs> I hope our owners did not just hear that. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, that, that's really, that's fascinating. And it, it's an interesting service. I mean, I never really thought about it this way, but I mean, I live in this world every day. It's interesting that most property management companies, us included, bill on a percentage of rent, which if you think about it, is very different than how most industries bill. I mean, most of the time, if you go to Domino's, you pay for a pizza. Right. And whether you complain or not, you, for the most part, most pizzas are, are pretty similar. Right. Um, and yet in this, in this industry, um, there's actually a, a huge variance in terms of how much time and and also what kind of strategy you're going to implement as a property management company from property to property. That, that isn't always just dictating how much money you're going to make from the property. Yeah. I, and, I, and I think that model has pros and cons. I do think that it's a useful model because a model that's a, a flat payment model has its own challenges. Uh, but I think my argument is simply tied back to the fact that if you look at the menu of everything that a property manager has, it's really difficult to do all of those things within that time constraint and that money constraint. And so what we've done is we basically taken the pieces that we feel can be systematized mm -hmm. and move them over to the Philippines. We do not charge our property managers a fee for doing this. We simply provide it as a service to our property. Mm -hmm. It is a owner's um, optimization. Our yep. property managers initially hate it. Within three months, all are in love with it. That's interesting. Yeah, we, we have started uh, employing, we, uh, we have about a, a virtual assistant team of about 10 folks. It's been really a game changer for our business. Um, honestly, even the quality of work has been uh, really great. They also speak, ours they speak Spanish and English, um, mm -hmm. which has been for what we do really interesting. So I'm, I'm a believer for sure. I think that's really interesting that you you know, you're, you're basically not letting the fate of the property up to the property management company. You're saying, look, I want to hire a good company and I want, I want them to do what they're supposed to do, but we're going to come over top and, you know, we're going to also help source tenants, for example. And I, yeah, I mean, we don't want to do everything that the property manager is doing, but I think that sourcing tenants and processing tenant leads is, is a front end activity. If you could help with that, and reduce the load on the property manager and give them the ability to pick better tenants, they'll do it within, yeah. within you know, obviously fair housing laws, you know, being what they are, right. but still a property manager has some leeway when he has multiple uh, applications for the same unit. Neil, could you maybe give us an example of an experiment that you tried that you were hopeful about that actually maybe, maybe didn't 
um, go the way you were expecting or maybe something that ended up being kind of counterintuitive to what you would have expected? Yeah, actually, when we got started with lead generation, we were super hopeful. We spent, you know, and again, these are things I, I, I can't give you exact solutions for because they're part of our secret sauce. So when we started doing profiling and finding tenants, we started giving them to our property manager. We were hopeful that we would, you know, forever be in the 98 percentile occupied range. It didn't actually happen. We, so the, the first two or three months of our lead generation efforts were pretty much a failure because we were generating massive numbers of leads, but we weren't really getting any more appointments. And what we found was that the typical 200 unit property in the US is structured for a certain amount of traffic. If you double that traffic, you're not gonna double the number of appointments because you simply don't have time to process them. If you triple the amount of traffic, you'll probably get a little bit of a boost to your, um, to your you know, uh, incoming footfalls at the property, but it's not gonna be 2X or 3X, which is why we had to basically eventually admit defeat that by itself raising leads doesn't work. We've gotta process them. And the, pro the, the building the call center to process them was 10X more work. Why? Because we had to, you know, figure out, you know, we had, we had to have redundancy. We had to have phone call systems and PBXs that worked. We had to have, you know, recruiting processes, training processes, fair housing laws. I mean, there's so much stuff that we got into there because our first attempt, which was simply to raise it, to create lead flow for our property managers was uh, a failure. And when you say lead flow, so I guess you're differentiating between an appointment and mm -hmm and a phone number to call to set up an appointment. Is, is that fair? Yeah, so a lead is simply a person that's interested. And you know, a, uh, we don't even look at appointments. We were more interested in shows at the property, right? right? So what we were saying is, well, property manager, if I give you 100 people that are interested, how many of those people showed at the property? Is it 20%, is it 30%? Um, and it was much lower than that. So not until we started taking over those 100 leads and processing them ourselves in real time did we get to the 20 to 30%. Right, I mean, I guess, and it's just a bandwidth, bandwidth thing, right? Is that the property manager doesn't have the time. They don't, I mean, and, and they're showing people, they're doing appointments, they're also, a, a lot of properties have leasing agents that are actually doing a lot of paperwork. They're mm -hmm. calling, you know, previous landlords, they're calling, you know, previous, they're, they're calling employers. So their job is not sell, 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 sell. It's like sell, then do a bunch of admin work, then sell, then do a bunch of admin work. And most of them are working from the, at the property from nine to five, where we both know that the, the real action in our industry is two hours before 9 a.m. and two hours after 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. That's when people are looking. But I don't know of a lot, a lot of leasing agents that consistently work from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., right? So you, you, you're obviously losing a lot of heat because people are hot at that point of time when they're doing their research. And so the next day when you call them, they're, they're not interested. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, have you messed around with some uh, like automated booking uh, tech where the, they can schedule the showing themselves or do you, do you still believe in the, the, the call? So we automated a great deal, but not the way that you suggested. So one of the things that we do is that we focus our live phone call attention on the people that are interested. And then we use voice blasting for the people that are non-responsive. So that way we are not spending any phone time on non-responsive people. And even amongst those non-responsive lists, 
you know, we get people calling us back. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if you can segment your leads into higher quality and lower quality, have people focus on the higher quality, have voice blasting and text blasting focus on the lower quality, then you get much higher optimization. We found that even with the Philippines, it was too expensive to do lead processing unless we mixed technology and uh, outsourcing. It's fascinating. Um, Can you talk me through a little bit about, uh, have you done some data analysis on, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you have, or have you thought about data analysis of essentially keeping maintenance costs down? Is that, is that something you think about at all? I think to me, um, we obviously we have benchmarks just like any other asset management company of, of what the maintenance cost of the property should be. What we found is the best way to get maintenance costs down is to get your retention up. So we tend to focus a lot more on retention efforts because um, also we, we tend to focus a lot on community building, investor newsletters, highlighting good tenants, bringing in speakers, Taco Tuesdays, Pizza Fridays. Those sorts of things are what we are learning and, and implementing. And we haven't done enough of it to, to speak in an authoritative fashion, but that is, that is our feel that maintenance cost is more tied to tenant retention than any other benchmark. Right, because just turnover is expensive. Turnover is, is just so huge. I mean, it's, it's the big elephant when it comes on the maintenance side, right? So you, 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 I can go after a bunch of rabbits or I can just focus on the big elef- element, elephant and the elephant is turnover. That's fascinating. Um, and, and I'm sure in the interesting is here, as you evolve, you probably have more data in the future. And something we think about a lot is like, how do you prevent turnover? And, you know, uh, you know, you, you mentioned some of the stuff, but the interesting to see as you kind of evolve and the industry evolves of what actually leads to decreasing turnover the best. I think it's a variety of things. Some, some we can influence and some we can't. A lot of turnover has to do with the, the job market and the rent growth that we are pushing through. So, you know, internally we affect turnover through, through aggressive rent growth, um, you know, or rent bops. And externally, the job market is affecting, affecting it. So we've, it's, it's a delicate balance. There's no, we haven't found a magic spreadsheet that basically leads us through this. Every property seems to be very different. So some of the properties we've gone for, let's not do aggressive rent, rent growth. Let's just pack the property to 98% you know, occupancy for a while. And once it's at 98, then and only then will we start to be aggressive with rent growth, push it down to 95 reverse again, go back up to 98, then start pushing rent growth. Now this is, this is actually more complex because you're doing spurts of occupancy focused work and then doing a spurt of rent focused work and you're, you're alternating those two. But in my mind, that may actually be the best strategy. It just means that your property manager has two different sets of marching orders um, depending upon what the occupancy is. It's interesting. What, um, talk me through a little bit about how your data analysis, and I'm sure you probably spent a lot of time of finding new assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk through kind of some of the data and tech that you're excited about and, and maybe even u- using in order to find an asset? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're almost at the end of the show. So what I would suggest is that you look at, I, I give away a completely free course. I don't even get people's email addresses, full disclosure. 
when I give this course away. I did, I created this course just because I wanted to connect to the multifamily community. The course is at Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y.com. I'll tell you a little bit about it, but I w- I'd like people to have full access to this. It's called, it's Udemy.com. The course is called Real Focus. You can find it by just typing Udemy space Neil Bawa into the web and hitting enter and, and it'll bring you to the course. The course is about three hours long. I use 10 different metrics, five for cities and five for neighborhoods. And these metrics are very highly defined in this course. They come with Excel spreadsheets. They come with cheat sheets. They come with how do you use the system next year? How do you use it on large cities? How do you use it on small cities? Um, How do you use it on super fast growing cities and super slow growing cities? Um, It's all there. The basics are that demographics really drives uh, city selection and neighborhood selection. And so the five elements of demographics at the city level are um, population growth, home price growth, income growth, job growth, and crime reduction. So we tell people about these, but then we tell them, where exactly do you find this statistic for your property? How much crime reduction is necessary? How much job growth? How much income growth? How much population growth? How much home price growth? What are those numbers? Where do you find them for your property? And how do you, within five minutes, tell if it's a good area or not using an Excel spreadsheet that we give away on udemy.com? So it's a very full course. And then, of course, we replicate those at the neighborhood level. Neil, I'd like you to react to something. um, It's fascinating. One of my personal beliefs is that uh, I, I hate it when people say that real estate is local. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, it seems like one thing that you've done is be able to use data and tech to frame out things that historically would have been local, such as knowing a neighborhood. And it seems like you're almost implying, look, I can know a neighborhood without ever even being in the neighborhood. I used to say that. I think I've been proven wrong so many times that I don't say that anymore. <laughs> the, the truth is that all I'm able to do is to give you a list of cities that's probably going to be a lot better for your investment. And then within those cities, point neighborhoods that are probably going to be better for your investment. But what I found is that none of this has, you know, all it does is it, it reduces the number of airfares that you're going to buy. But once you've picked your cities using the system, you can't reduce the number of times you're going to go to those properties. So there's no substitute for local knowledge, uh, but I can save you from wasting your time on horrible cities that you should never be investing in and horrible neighborhoods that you shouldn't be investing in. Over 10,000 people take the Udemy course every year. The most consistent, people know that I don't get their email address, they've never seen spam from me. They know that this is just a pure give. It is just a, a gift back to the community. And so I get a very large number of reviews and you can read those reviews on Udemy, but I get a dozen emails a month from people telling me how they use the system. And the number one comment from people is, Neil, you've saved me thousands and thousands of dollars of airfare. But in the course, I mention a lot of times and people get it that it's not a substitute for going to the location. It's a way to narrow your funnel down. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think I think it's important for anyone in data that's a, that's really into and passionate about data and tech and real estate is uh, that a lot of these things they complement the more traditional approach, right? Of of kind of feet on the street, I guess. And it's not a substitute; it's a complement. And then when complemented, 
it probably uh, optimizes your time, to your point. It optimizes time and it optimizes profit because if you pick the right cities, you're going to have an incredible benefit. So I have a property that was picked this way. Uh, I just sent an investor update out to 29 investors. The, the top three lines of the invest, investor update said, um, income nine month high, net operating income nine month high, delinquency $0 for nine straight months. I don't know if there's anybody else that has a property like this. <laughs> and, and, and your point is that this property ticked off all of your boxes, basically. Well, first the city ticked off our boxes. Then the neighborhood ticked off our boxes. Only then did we look at the property. I think the demand in that area is so insane that rent growth or no rent, and by the way, we aggressively raise rents at this property. In the end, it doesn't matter. I mean, the tenants don't want to move out because they're afraid. They're fearful. Yeah. And I would imagine that you're almost willing to, I don't want to say overpay, but definitely pay a premium for a property like this because well, you know in a couple of years it's going to be worth so much more. I don't want to use that word premium because it, it, it sends the wrong implication. But here's, I'll give you an example. Columbus, Ohio is a good market, in my opinion, amongst the Rust Belt markets. But there are places in Columbus where I would happily pay $80,000 a unit, and there are other places where I would not pay $40,000. I think that's the most fair way of putting it in. Is that a premium that I paid, or am I just paying value either way? Right. Do you have an opinion? Would you buy a property for the right price in any market? Is that how you think about the world? No. Maybe, maybe any market is too, is too great a, a statement, but is that kind of how you look at things? Is uh, that no, I, I, tend, I, I tend not to do that, Chad. So the, the short answer is I believe in the concept of headwind and tailwind. So if it's a headwind market, I will not buy. Like, for example, Shreveport, Louisiana is a market that I consider to have spectacular headwinds. So if if the going rate in Shreveport was 40,000 a door and I had access to a property at 35,000 a door, technically that's huge. So you're, you've got massive amount of in built in equity on day one, correct? Right. I would not buy. Okay. So there are, there are uh, do not pass go markets that you're not even uh, interested in. I'm not looking in. at them simply yeah. because I know that at this point, all the data in the T12 is based on the ninth year of a spectacular expansion. What happens when we hit the next recession in that market? There's no economic fundamentals for that price to be valid. Right. It's fascinating. Um, Neil, I, there's a question I ask most people, and I'm going to ask you, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, what are you excited about from a technology or data perspective over the next five years that, that maybe you didn't have access to before, uh, but, but you will have access to with just evolving tech or evolving data platforms? Well, firstly, we don't have to wait five years. I'm excited about tools like Neighborhood Scout and their ability to be so decisive in, in showing me data. Uh, I'm excited about real.ai, companies like that that basically can show you the one property in a neighborhood that is significantly undervalued, even if you buy it at four cap, right? Because I, I tell people, 
There's plenty of properties out there that are better buy at four cap than some other property at eight cap, right? Because it's it's about the money that is still left on the table. Right. So you're saying, and you just to frame this for our listeners, you know, if if the going rent should be eight hundred dollars a door, and it's right now rented for six hundred, the cap rate's almost irrelevant. Almost, I mean, irre- almost irrelevant. I, I want to use the word almost there, but but yes, I would I would say it exactly the way you said it. Almost right. irrelevant. Right. And so you buy something that that looks like whoa a four four cap or whatever that that under normal circumstances you wouldn't buy, but if the rents are $200, who, almost who cares what the, what the cap rate is up front? Uh, obviously, it's something you take into consideration, but really what you're trying to say is, what's the, what's the IRR look like you know, over the next 10 years? And that's going to have more to do with where you're going to reposition the product than yes. where it's and there's, there's products like real.ai coming out. And right now they're expensive, but you, you said five years, right? What I find is technology takes five years to commercialize and to commoditize. So I believe that I could probably buy a subscription five years from now to a service like real.ai that gives me an incredible, ridiculously stupid advantage over everybody else. And, 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 and at that point, I probably won't be buying 200 unit buildings for my investors. I'd probably be buying 50 unit buildings for me, right? <laughs> so, I mean, at that point, when I know that I have these ridiculous advantages, then I, 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 you know, I'll just keep growing my personal portfolio. And since you brought this up, and I'm, I'm actually not familiar with real.ai. Um, it's the first time I've been exposed to it. This is a, uh, it sounds like a, a platform that basically takes into account uh, rents and costs, but, but says what really should they be in this market? It's almost a platform that takes the underwriting process and automates it and gives you an answer saying, you know, here's a heat map of this neighborhood. And if you see these three or four properties based on their rents and occupancy from CoStar or whatever, wherever they get the data from, oh, well. these clearly are great buys. And then you see all these red here. These are un- overvalued. Don't touch these. See what I mean? Right. Yeah. And you can, you can look at that in, you know, math view or whatever it is. There's a number of these startups. I am not suggesting that you go and buy a subscription to real.ai, Right. They are an example of the sort of technology that is revolutionizing the, the art and science of underwriting uh, in the future, right? And I also believe that the sort of services that I'm building for my own apartment complexes will actually become commercially available in five years. Right now, the, the number one question I get is, so you generate 20,000 leads for your six buildings. Why don't you generate it for me? And the answer is because their secret sauces that don't work when I generate those for everybody. They become known, right? So I have no intention of telling anybody, but I know that my secret will get out sooner or later because some people will do it. That's interesting. Now, do you have a hypothesis? And I'm really interested here. I don't actually know your answer here, but do you have a hypothesis that come back in maybe, let's say 10 years or 15 years, there won't quite be this major differentiator of what a property sells for and what it's worth? Because if you fast forward the AI tech, like you're saying, at some point that information leads to things trading on the open market at more of the market price they should trade for. That is exactly correct. So the, the opportunity in the real estate industry, the multifamily real estate industry in particular, is going to shrink over time as technology basically reduces uh, the, makes the in, 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 reduces the inefficiency, makes the information available, not just to the potential buyer, but to the seller themselves. And so this 
commoditizes areas. I mean, the airline industry, for example, had huge margins before travel agents went out of business. And now the airline industry is basically fighting over the last 5%, right? So that's, that's their margin, the last 5%. Imagine, imagine our margins being reduced to 5% in, in, um, in multifamily. I'd be doing something else. And so people say, what are you going to be doing, Neil? The answer is whatever else has margins. That's what I'm going to be doing. That's, that's fascinating, Neil. Uh, last question for you here. So I was on a podcast yesterday. I made a comment, and the host uh, is someone, a very good friend of mine, and he looked at me like I had four eyes when I said this. I want to hear your thoughts on this. So we were talking about real estate agents, and so I have a fundamental belief that as tech and data increase over the next 10 years, I think, and I made the comment, that you're going to see a major decrease in the number of real estate agents because that profession really moves into free flow of data and tech. And if you still even need a real estate agent, you'll pay them way less because what they're providing for you is, is a lot less and, and more driven by tech. Um, I even made the comment, like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was only 10% of the amount of real estate agents in 10 years as there are today. What, would you agree with that? Or? No, I wouldn't. I, I think okay. that to me, that area has proven very, very difficult to automate. It has... So many different approaches have been had, the Redfin approach, the Zillow approach, you know, there's the, the, the FSBO approach. I think the industry has tried very hard over the last 20 years to take away the money that the real estate broker makes. And they just haven't been able to take away the fact that a broker needs to physically show a property to a buyer um, and that buyers feel a level of comfort in that. I do think that their margins will shrink. I think that if a real estate broker makes 250,000 today, maybe 10 years from now, they'll make 150. But I think that will still be compelling enough for most of the brokers to still be there. So I, I expect a small reduction. I don't expect a large reduction. That That's seems to be an area that is very, very hard to automate. I am certainly not trying to automate that one. I, right. Because I, I'm not interested, you know, the mad scientists are not interested in taking on the hardest project they're interested in finding loopholes. And yeah. so far, a hundred different dot-coms, a thousand different dot-coms over the last 20 years have failed to take money away from the brokers. So you're more interested in the things that no one's talking about, like can I create a loophole around getting more leads for tenants for my, my units, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think, that, I think that there's an industry growing up in creating more leads for brokers you know, more potential homeowners, more potential sellers. So the industry has been very successful in technology. But what has happened is any attempt to remove the broker from the center of this transaction has so far been very unsuccessful. And I think a lot of it has to do with the emotion of home buying. And unless all of a sudden people, you know, change from, from you know, Captain Kirk to Spock, and I don't see a lot of the world changing over to the Spock side, I don't think that changes. Neil, fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day. Um, one of the most uh, data-centric guests we've had on here, I, I think you're in the minority in this industry. It's interesting, before I got into this, I was in digital advertising. And when I entered the industry, it looked a lot like real estate does today. When I exited, it looked a lot like how you talk. And it'll be interesting to see this change if it happens over the next 10 years. My guess is it actually goes a lot the same way digital ad tech does, which is more data scientists like yourself. Yep. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, you look at data scientists in tech today, the number one job in America 
is data scientists, right? So just Google it and say, what's the most prized job in America? And the answer is data science. And I think that we will have real estate data scientists in the future as well. I'll, I'll certainly be at the top of that particular queue. But you can actually learn how to be a data scientist today. We have a website. It's called multifamilyu.com. And it's not really about multifamily. It's about everything real estate. But we're multifamily guys. So we called it multifamilyu.com. It stands for Multifamily University. And we bring in about 40 top of the line speakers. We audit every single slide of their slide deck. We remove the pitches. We hate pitches because we don't pitch ourselves on that website. What well, we pitch a little bit, that, that's not true. So we, we were very careful to make sure that no one ever accuses us of, hey, we had an hour long webinar with a nugget. We'd much rather be accused of, there was an hour full of nuggets with a pitch that was a minute long. Of course. And so we follow that process. About 25 to 30,000 people register each year for those deep dive webinars. They are free, there's no advertisement running, and there's no high pressure sales pitches. We don't get a kickback from those speakers, you know, those commission checks. It's all designed for people to learn. So check out multifamilyu.com. If you're interested in figuring out the best cities and neighborhoods in the US, check out udemy.com or just udemy Neil Bawa on Google. And I think that will give you your head start in, in data science. Neil, this is fascinating stuff. I imagine on LinkedIn, you're also uh, available to be connected with. I love LinkedIn. I love Facebook. In fact, my, my favorite way of connecting with people is my Facebook group. It's called Magic of Multifamily. So go to Facebook, type in Magic of Multifamily. As it happens, it is by far the fastest growing uh, group in America for multifamily. So we have about three times the growth rate of the industry because uh, there's a lot of uh, dorks and geeks out there that are frustrated that people don't use data. It's awesome, Neil. C count me in the dork nerd column. Uh, you'll have a plus one of your Facebook group and hopefully some more from this um, podcast because we do have a lot of nerds that listen to this uh, each episode. Neil, awesome stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll probably have you come back again at some point. Really fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks for having me. Cool. Bye. So that's our episode of Real Estate Hackers. Thanks for joining us in your real estate investing journey. We come out with fresh new episodes weekly. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And if you would, let your fellow investors know about us. Also, if you've ever hacked or found a unique solution to an issue in the real estate space, hit me up. We may even share your real estate hack on a future episode. Check out our site at realestatehackers.com on Instagram, at realestatehackers, or email me directly at chad at realestatehackers.com. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Huge thanks and shout out to Eric and the team at On Air Brands. Be sure to check them out at onairbrands.com. This is Chad Gallagher, your host of Real Estate Hackers. Hope to see you at our next meetup or live event. And who knows, you may even be the next guest hacker on our show. See you soon.